Hey everybody, Kristen Neff is our guest today. So much of the process is about self-compassion, and it's not every day that you get a chance to interview really an early pioneer in the field, one of the early researchers of self-compassion, Dr. Kristen Neff. She hasn't done the process yet, but near the end, she talks about doing it at some point, and so we'll get a post-process conversation with her. But for now, enjoy this conversation about her research and the power of self-compassion. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Dr. Kristen Neff is with us today. Welcome, Dr. Neff. Oh, thanks. I'm glad to be here. We are so excited that you are here. And, you know, we talk so much about self-compassion and you have made it your life's work. So we're grateful. You graduated from the University of California, Berkeley. You're an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. You've done so much work, a pioneer in this field of self-compassion research and even creating a scale to measure this almost 20 years ago. You've been recognized as one of the world's most influential research psychologists. You've written numerous academic articles, book chapters on this topic, and your two powerful books, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and your more latest book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. Thank you for being here. I'm happy to be here. I was thinking about you in this field early on. I know it comes, self-compassion comes from the Buddhist traditions, but I imagine there wasn't much research on it. What was that like early on? deciding that this is where you wanted to go and put your research energy. Yeah. So again, the idea of having compassion turned inward as well as outward is nothing new. It's an ancient idea. I mean, if you look at early Christianity, accepting Jesus's love, you know, Buddhism, kind of omnidirectional compassion, the, the idea is, but in psychology, no one had really looked at compassion for self. They'd really only examined compassion for others. So what had happened was I had done two years of postdoctoral study with a leading self-esteem researcher, and I was studying self-esteem and all the potential downfalls of self-esteem, like, you know, you have to be special and above average, you know, your best isn't good enough, um, you always have to meet set standards of looks or how much people like you, et cetera, et cetera. I was thinking that, well, self-compassion is the perfect alternative, you know, where self-esteem is a fair-weather friend, it's only there for you in the good times, self-compassion is there for you in the bad times, you know, when you really need a friend and it's much more stable. 
And so I just thought, well, why not give it a shot? Why don't I try to define this thing and measure it and see what happens? And that was 20 years ago. Now there's over 5,000 studies on self-compassion. I can't keep up with the literature. It's, it's really huge. So um, it was one of those things where I just took a chance and it paid off. I know you've spoken a bunch about how it doesn't exist in our culture, that there's so many myths about it, it's misunderstood, and the dominant culture kind of views it the opposite, which is that if we're tougher on ourselves, we'll do better. Can you share a little bit about what you're up against and what self-compassion is up against in the culture? Yeah, well, there are actually two things. One is cultural and the other is evolutionary. So I'll talk about the cultural first. Our culture has a lot of myths about self-compassion. Like, you know, people will say, well, can't you be too self-compassionate? Well, now, compassion is um, concerned with alleviating suffering. So it's kind of an oxymoron to say you can be, you know, too concerned with alleviating suffering. Because if you're doing something that's causing suffering, in other words, too much, then it's no longer self-compassionate. So people get confused. For instance, they think it's weak, that it just means like, you know, just being soft and squishy. Uh, quite the opposite. You know, when you go into battle, who do you want by your side? Do you want an ally? Self-compassion. You know, I've got your back. I'm here for you. I'm here to support you. You say that to yourself versus shame, shame and criticism and pulling the rug underneath you, out, out from underneath yourself. That's actually not going to make you stronger. That's going to make you weaker. Um, other ones are that it's selfish, you know, because people, sometimes people can be selfish. So we, they think that giving compassion to yourself means not giving compassion for others, like it's a zero-sum game, which of course it's not, because compassion is a connected way of being with suffering. And so therefore, the more compassion I have for myself, the more resources I have available to give to others. It's not its not a zero-sum game at all. It gives you, gives you the ability and the strength to continue caring for others without losing yourself or burning out. But what we find in the research is that the number one block to self-compassion, by the way, this isn't just American culture. We find this all over the world, is the belief that'll undermine our motivation. You know, we'll lose our edge, we'll lose our drive. And that's because people think that being really hard on themselves, like if they make a mistake or fall short of their standards, by really self-flagellating, that that's going to make them try harder. And it's actually very similar to parenting philosophies. Right? We used to think spare the rod, spoil the child. And so it is true that harsh self-punishment, calling yourself names, might get short-term compliance, just as harshly punishing your child will get short-term compliance. Okay, I'll work a little harder now because if I don't, I'll be in trouble, right? That's kind of what we do with ourselves. The problem is all these knock-on side effects that are actually un that are actually negative for your motivation. For instance, shame is not exactly get up and go mind state. Um, depression also undermines your motivation. You lose self-confidence. You create performance anxiety and create fear of failure, which means you don't want to take risks because if you fail, you're going to slam yourself with criticism. And of course, if you can't take risks, you can't learn and grow. So just as with kids, what we know is that the more effective approach is encouragement. So the bottom line is, you know, whether you win or lose, whether you succeed or fail, it doesn't affect your self-worth. In other words, I still love you or I can still love myself as a human being, whether I succeed or fail. But that self-love doesn't mean that we accept behaviors or situations that are harmful. That's not loving, right? It's not, it wouldn't be loving to our kid if they weren't potty trained by age 10. There's a problem, right? 
the motivation of self-compassion, it's there, but it comes from care, not from fear, right? So we motivate ourselves because we want to reach our goals, because we, we want to be healthy. We don't want to continue to suffer. If we fall short, uh, that's okay. It's only human. This is really important. Self-compassion encourages learning goals. In other words, well, it's okay. Everyone makes mistakes. It's only human. What can I learn from this? How can I grow? How can I do better next time? As opposed to saying, I am a failure. I'm worthless. I'm hopeless. I might as well just give up. So the research is, is pretty clear. It's a much more effective motivator than self-criticism. I hear resiliency in what self-compassion helps create. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much data, you know, whether it's people dealing with COVID or dealing with cancer or, or um, dealing with combat. For instance, there's a lot of research on self-compassion among combat soldiers showing that soldiers who are more self-compassionate about the trauma they faced overseas, especially in war situations, they're much more likely to get through it less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome. I'm less likely to turn to drugs or alcohol as a way to deal with their pain or, or the ultimate escape, you know, suicidal ideation as a way to deal with the pain. And that's because what self-compassion is, so if you just break it down, the word passion means to suffer, calm means with in Latin. How are you with your suffering? Are you with your suffering in a warm, supportive, encouraging way? You know, it's like accepting ourselves while doing anything we can to help the situation, just like you would for someone else you cared about. That type of support makes it easier to get through the tough stuff because it gives us the ability to hold the pain without being overwhelmed by it. Another way you can think of what self-compassion is, holding pain with love. So it's very painful. This is really difficult. We hold ourselves with love, with kindness, with support, with warmth, with a sense of connectedness to the greater whole during that pain. And what happens is, A, the pain is less overwhelming because we, we don't spiral into negative loops like depression, anxiety, etc. At the same time, that, that love, that feeling of connectedness, it feels good. It's actually a positive emotion. So we aren't papering over the negative. We aren't like sugarcoating it. We're saying, ow, this really hurts. Or I did this. It's really painful to admit that I did this. But, you know, but that's okay because I'm imperfect. All human beings are imperfect. Just because I made a mistake doesn't mean I am a mistake. How can I learn and grow from this? And that sense of support and warmth is a positive emotion that leads to happiness that leads to um, optimism, that leads to hope. So it's really a, a transformative way to deal with our suffering. And I think if, if we don't have it, then it's very hard to get through the tough times. Dr. Neff, you spoke already about some of your research, and this feels important for people who are trying to understand it, people are trying to figure out whether to buy into it, that this is empirical. Like research proves through uh, thousands of studies, as you have said, that self-compassion works. Why do you think the research is so important across multiple fields that people understand that? Well, one is because we have these myths about it, right? So we're afraid it's going to make things worse. And it's kind of interesting. The fact that we're afraid to be self-compassionate is kind of an act of care because, you know, sure, if it's going to make it worse, if it's going to make us lazy, if it's going to make us self-indulgent, we wouldn't want to do it. It wouldn't be helpful. So that feeling of care, ironically, is often driving harsh self-criticism because we think at some level, some part of us thinks it's going to help, help us get ourselves in shape or maybe, you know, blunt the pain of criticism from others. 
the research is really important because it kind of says, hey, <laughs> you know, give it a try. The research shows it's not going to make you into all these things you're afraid it's going to make you into. Try it out for yourself. I mean, ultimately, the research only goes so far. You have to try being more kind and warm and supportive to yourself and see what happens. There's also another thing that I mentioned briefly but didn't go into, which is evolution. So, you know, if you're someone who beats yourself up, please don't beat yourself up for that. <laughs> it's actually really natural. Uh, and that's because by evolution, we're designed when there's a problem, like so when we fail or make a mistake, there's a big problem, we feel threatened. We're designed to go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. So we fight ourselves because we're the problem, right? We think that maybe, again, we'll get ourselves in line or that we'll toughen ourselves up to be able to handle things. Or we flee into a sense of shame and isolation. Or we freeze, we like ruminate, we get stuck. It's like maybe if I just think about it for you know, 59,000 times, the problem will go away. It's a very natural reaction to threat, but it's actually more effective for a situation like a lion chasing you than it is for like you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see. The care response is also an evolved response, also very natural, but it actually evolved to care for others, to care for our offspring, you know, parents who are more caring and compassionate, their, their babies more, more likely to live, and group members who are more compassionate and helpful to others, they were more likely to live. We kind of have to do a hack. Right? We're using the system that evolved to care for others, and we're doing a U-turn and using it for ourselves. So it does feel a little weird at first. I'm not going to lie. At the very beginning, it feels a little awkward. It feels like you're faking it. It's only because you're used to doing it for others. But after a while, it starts to feel very natural. Like, well, sure, who, you know, why am I not worthy of care just like anyone else? And then once you start using that care system to support yourself, it's actually more stable over time, a more reliable source of support than self-criticism. That awkwardness, that uncomfortable feeling of trying it out for the first time feels important for people to understand that because it feels awkward doesn't mean it won't eventually work. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, we like to say that it's, it's not so important what you feel, it's how you are relating to what you feel, which is really interesting. So self-compassion isn't a particular, you know, emotion. It's not like I feel warm and fuzzy or I feel good or I feel safe. I mean, often those feelings do arise, but it's really how are you relating to whatever's happening? So if what's coming up is difficult or challenging, are you being supportive? Are you being caring? In other words, that care is driving you to try to do what you can to help, to comfort, to soothe, or to make changes that are going to be helpful in some way. So if what's coming up for you is, I can't do this. I feel like a total phony. You don't have to like just rest your awareness in what's coming up for you. You can relate to that. Oh, wow, that's tough. That's tough that you really want to try to be self-compassionate. You feel like a phony. That's uncomfortable, huh? What would you say if a friend said that to you? You'd be like, oh, yeah, well, just you know, give it a try. See, see what happens. Maybe hang in there. I'm here to support you. Really, it's a way of relating to the contents of what's coming up as opposed to a particular form of what's uh, experience itself. And this is so important because no matter what comes up, you know, good, bad, indifferent, you know, numbness, you can relate to your experience with an open heart, right? With, with care, with love, with kindness, with a sense of goodwill. And it's that goodwill that really at the end of the day creates the, the good benefits of self-compassion. Even if you don't feel it, even if you feel like a total phony, 
but I'm trying, I'm making an effort. Okay, well then that counts. And then eventually that effort, even if it, at first it doesn't feel natural, eventually that effort will start to pay off because it's the effort, it's the goodwill, which is actually the magic ingredient. It's not whether or not you're feeling compassion in the moment that's so important. Wow, goodwill is the magic ingredient. I love that. Earlier, you mentioned that research only goes so far, and part of what you're talking about now is the importance of giving it a try, allowing that goodwill to begin to wash over us. And I'm, I'm imagining that that's what you did in those early days. You were both researching and practicing it as well in your life. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, fortunately for me, it was a practice before I started researching it. I probably had maybe three or four years of self-compassion practice under my belt before I started researching it, you know, and, and I found self-compassion at a really low point in my life. I had um, just gotten a divorce and it was a really messy divorce and I was feeling a lot of shame, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of inadequacy. And I was also having, feeling a lot of stress because it was actually my last year of graduate school at UC Berkeley. I had spent all this time and money and years you know, getting my PhD in the job market was pretty crap. You know, there's not, there's not many jobs out there. And I was like, you know, my God, I've wasted all this time and money. Am I going to even be able to pay the bills? So I was under a lot of stress. And so I actually uh, learned self-compassion through a mindfulness group who taught in the tr tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Zen, recently passed Zen um, teacher, who, who always talked about the importance of turning compassion inward as well as outward. And it took me a while to learn mindfulness meditation, you know, to quiet my mind or to, you know, be able to, to do that. <laughs> it took quite a while, to be honest. But I almost immediately saw the benefits of self-compassion. I came home the night, the first, the first course I went to, I came home and I said, okay, well, you know, okay, I'll try talking to myself like a friend. Okay, Kristen, it's, it's a really hard time. You're, you're feeling badly. I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, it happens to everyone. You're not the only one. Um, how can I help? I care about you. And I just, <laughs> when I did that, it immediately made it easier to cope. Instead of saying, you, you screw up, you, you know, <laughs> you're calling myself names, which made it harder to cope. Giving myself that understanding, that support. There's three components of self-compassion that I talk about. There's kindness, which is kind of obvious. There's mindfulness to be able to turn toward the pain. But really important is humanity. Compassion is grounded in a sense of shared humanity. Under, it's a wisdom practice, understanding that, hey, we are all just trying the best we can with the limited resources we've been giving. Life is not about getting it right. It's about getting it wrong and learning from those mistakes. I mean, we all know this, but we forget it. And so compassion at its core is a sense of, really just understanding that moment by moment, we're doing the best we can, giving ourselves support, not, not having these unrealistic expectations of perfection. And really, it's really about letting go of the ego. It's the ego that says, I should be able to get it all right. Everything should go well for me. You know, who signed up for birth with that plan? You know, show me the contract. That's not what being a human being is about. Uh, and when we let go of the ego, and we realize we're part of a much larger whole, that things happen. You know, we didn't choose our parents. We didn't choose our genes. We didn't choose our culture. We didn't, we didn't choose a lot of things. We're just kind of moment by moment doing, you know, the best we can. 
again, moment after moment, learning and trying with this kind of sense of this care, this love that's driving us forward. Once we really understand the depth of that, then everything just becomes easier to deal with. I've heard you say at times that you say to yourself, I will not abandon you. Yes, that's one of my favorite sayings to myself. You know, probably not surprising, I had a father that left when I was two, so, you know, (laughs) everyone has their own little button issues, right? But don't we usually abandon ourselves? I mean, just when we're down, when we need ourselves the most, we shame ourselves, we numb ourselves, we distract ourselves, we call ourselves name, we're mean to ourselves. You know, instead of just saying, hey, I'm so sorry you're hurting, I'm here for you. In terms of psychotherapy models, I really think internal family systems is a really useful model where we talk about different parts of ourselves. And often what happens is these parts of ourselves, like the self-critical part or the fearful part, they're trying to help as best they can. And what happens is when we shame them or we shut them down or we judge them, they like they get scared and they try to take over the system. Like anger, for instance, often takes over the system because it's so desperately afraid that if it doesn't scream and shout, it won't be heard. So saying to our, our negative emotions or these difficult parts of ourselves, hey, I promise you, I will not abandon you. It's like, oh, okay, I feel safe. I can relax. And then you can start working with these various emotions that are trying to help as opposed to trying to work against them. And it's really powerful stuff. In the process, we talk about surrender and the importance of surrendering to our higher self, our spiritual self, uh, as opposed to submit and submitting to the rules, the guidelines, you actually surrender to you. And there was one anecdote you shared. I really appreciate how in your research and in your writing, you intertwined the research with the personal anecdotes with your son on the airplane. The story I made up is that that was a powerful moment of surrender. Is that how you saw it? And can you share a little bit about that moment? Yes. And it was that was one moment. But I mean, those those little moments, it doesn't have to be big and dramatic. Those little moments are all what about what self-compassion is, really. So the story is that um, I was taking my son on a transatlantic flight from um, Austin to London, and uh, he's autistic. And it was right after dinner, and they, they turned the lights down so that everyone could get some sleep. But that really startled my son, who's very environmentally sensitive. And so turning the lights all of a sudden set him off on a huge, screaming, flailing tantrum on the plane. So I was just feeling overwhelmed, and I felt bad. He was being really disruptive. All these people were trying to sleep. I was you know, imagining they were judging me because he was about five at the time. He looked normal. So they were probably thinking, you know, what's wrong with that kid? What's wrong with that mom? Why can't she control her kid? And so I just felt complete overwhelm. So I, I came up with the plan. The only plan I could come up with was, oh, I know, I'll take him to the toilet and let him have his tantrum in there and maybe, you know, drown, drown the screams out. So we get to the toilet, which was, of course, occupied, right? Because the plan life had for me in the moment was not how to escape a difficult situation, but what do you do when you have no options? So what I did is we actually, it's probably not sanitary, but nonetheless, we got on the floor and I made sure he wasn't harming himself or destroying the plane. 
But what I did was I just, at that point, I knew my only option in times like that was really self-compassion. There was very little I could do for him. But I just flooded myself with compassion. I put my hands on my heart. I started rocking myself. I started, you know, mumbling out loud. It probably looked funny, but I didn't care at that point. You know, this is so hard, darling. I'm so sorry. I'm here for you. I care. I love you. You know, I just flooded myself with compassion. And then what happened in that moment, and um, it really happens in any moment of compassion, is instead of being lost in, again, kind of the contents of awareness, in particular emotions, the pain, the screams, the drama, my awareness moved to the, the love holding the pain, right? That sense of care, that sense of connectedness, that sense of awareness of I'm here for you, I will not abandon you, I care. And so that actually became my predominant experience. And then actually what happened, which often have with my son, is my son was able to resonate with my calm, compassionate mindset. So then actually he started calming down and then I was able to actually help him. And then he, eventually the tantrum ended and we were able to go back to our seats. You know, I really can't emphasize this enough. And it's, it's really related to what I said before about it's not so much what's happening, it's how you're relating to what's happening. Because if, if you believe, you know, and I do, and this may be getting a little spiritual, but in awareness itself is love. You know, you don't, you don't have to believe this. There's no scientific data for it. But at least my experience is you can be in the state of loving awareness. So it doesn't matter what's happening, if it's pleasant, unpleasant, painful, you know, joyous. If you move your, your kind of sense of self from the contents, which is thoughts, especially thoughts of I, thoughts of this is bad, this is good, this is, shouldn't be happening, this, whatever it is, to just being, you know, loving, connected presence, which are actually the three components of compassion, love, kindness, connection, common humanity, and presence, mindfulness. You start to, you start to identify with loving, connected presence, which, as you mentioned, is not really yourself anymore. When you are connected with loving, connected presence, you're connected with the larger, big self, God, you can call it awareness, universal consciousness, doesn't matter what you call it. And that's really, that's really what you're doing with every moment of self-compassion is you're surrendering, you're giving up the ego's identification with what it thinks should be or shouldn't be, and you're moving into that larger universal consciousness, which is loving and connected and present. So it is, it's scientific, but it's also really a spiritual practice. And for me, to be totally honest, there is no difference. I think when I hear you talk about that, you use the word love a lot. And it feels like understanding self-compassion is a practice in understanding what love really is. It is. Now, now I, I normally don't use love. I don't call it self-love, for instance, just because the word is so misused. I mean, a narcissist might be said to love themselves, right? So the word is, you can argue whether or not they really do, but nonetheless, the word is kind of not specific. That's, I like compassion because it has that sense of connectedness in it, and it's particular to suffering. That's why I don't use the word self-love, just because it can be too easily be misconstrued. But ultimately, of course, there's love in compassion. So both in two parts, but not only the kindness, but the connection. And this connection again is so key. You know, that's what makes it different than self-pity. Self-pity is the sense of separation, feeling sorry for yourself, feeling sorry for someone else. Compassion is a sense of connectedness. Hey, I've been there. We all go through this. And it's that connectedness that manifests as love. In some ways, some, some people talk about, you know, when awareness recognizes itself, <laughs> it's experienced as love. 
the sense of connectedness in compassion, the sense of it's not just me that I'm, uh, that this experience is part of something much larger than the particular thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations that are arising in this one, in this one kind of human body right now, that's manifest as love. It's, you know, it's not romantic love. It's more of a, the sense of just deep connection, an ocean of love and connection. And that's what we're tapping into with self-compassion. Now, having said that, and I, I've, I said all that, and people may be thinking, oh, that sounds wonderful. I want some of that. But remember, <laughs> whether or not you're actually feeling that ocean of love is not an indication of whether or not you're, you're doing, being self-compassionate. Maybe you're just saying, oh man, I wish I could feel that great loving ocean right now. Ah, oh well, I'm here for myself. I'll keep trying. Again, it's really the goodwill. It's that intention, that intention that usually, you know, after time eventually will yield those good feelings, but it's not about the good feelings. It's about the goodwill and the good intention. That feels really important. It is important because people get stuck on it. They think if I'm not feeling it, it's not happening. It's really just setting your intention to try to help as much as you can, moment by moment. And you aren't, here's the thing, you, the small you, the little you that thinks you can control things, aren't in a lot, don't have a lot of control about what are, what's actually arising in the moment. You know, there's so many causes and conditions that are so much vaster than our small selves that are responsible for whether or not what arises in that moment is a feeling of oceanic love or a feeling of bitterness and numbness. You know, so just let go of that and just try to rest on the goodwill, good heart, open heart. I'm just trying, just doing the best you can moment by moment. That's enough. And eventually it will pay off. In the process, we have a poster that says, my life is my responsibility. And part of what I hear you saying is you can't control those things. And yet your reaction is where the, the power comes from, how you react to it or respond to it, I guess. Paul Goodwin has a similar great saying, it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility, right? In other words, yeah, so what happens, we, we, we don't have control over it, but there's no other body, mind, in a particular point in time and space that's in the right position to take responsibility other than you. So it is your responsibility, but you're causing, you're in control of things that happen. But what you do have some play with is this intention. That's why intention is this, is the silver lining or the, the gold dust or whatever, you, the magic. Because through our intention, we can like move our intention toward trying as best we can through goodwill to have good outcomes. And so that's where our responsibility is, the, the effort. We just try our best. We just try our best. And in terms of what actually happens, we aren't in a lot of control over it can be frustrating because it sounds so nebulous and it is nebulous. It's not one of those really clear cut things. And, you know, right now I'm talking not so much as a scientist because these things can't really be scientifically proven, but more as someone who's practiced this for 30 years now. Um, I've just seen it happen over and over again. It's really about that edge of intention, opening your heart moment by moment, opening to what's happening with a sense of connectedness being willing to turn toward and be present with what's happening, feeling love toward yourself or any other conscious being that's in your presence in the moment, and just taking it moment by moment 
And as you say that, I'm remembering the story of your son, how we define love as the rendering, the flowing of emotional goodness to ourself first and then to others in our life. And he felt your self-love. And as you said, he was able to soothe himself by, sounds like, connecting with your own deep self-compassion. Yeah, well, that's the way the brain works. You know, we know they're mirror neurons. The brain is actually designed for empathetic resonance. So just as we feel the pain of others, we also feel the love and compassion of others. You know, so I couldn't, he couldn't actually regulate his emotions and I couldn't regulate his emotions directly, but I could help regulate his emotions by regulating my own emotions because his ability to empathically resonate with my mind state, because we actually were quite close, actually helped calm him down. So I will take just a slight issue with, I'm not so sure it's the case that you have to love yourself first. I think it's probably more accurate to say that you, we shouldn't separate ourselves out of the circle of compassion. What's happening with love is we're, we're lifting that sense of separation. So if you were to love yourself and feel separate from others, you know, you, you could do that route. But really, I think the, the key is just kind of losing that sense of separation. So when you love others and not yourself, you're feeling very separated. If you feel, if you love yourself and not others, you're feeling separated. You know, if you can kind of lift the veil of separation and let the love just flow freely inward and outward simultaneously, to me, that's really what the state of love is. You mentioned narcissism earlier, the only self-love without the connection and being in the circle of compassion creates separation. That feels important distinction. That's right. And it's really about the exposure of the illusion of the separate self. We all have different eyeballs, but the, the light shining out of my eyes is the same light that's shining out of your eyes, even though what we see is different. The, the love is what's kind of focusing on that shared light as opposed to what we see, which is quite distinct. I want to ask a question about you personally and as your notoriety, your, your profile, your research has gotten more famous and the increased exposure. I was just checking out online some of the reactions to some of the talks that you do, and there are trolls everywhere, but it seems like I'm just curious about how you have navigated sharing your story as openly and as vulnerably as you have as your profile has risen in the world. Well, I don't read it, so don't tell me if people are saying nasty things about me because I don't want to know. I don't read that stuff. Yeah, I just, um, I'm just myself. I'm authentic. And whether there's praise or blame, it's kind of their issue, not mine, you know? I know you have connected with one of our teachers, Kevin Ayers. You guys have collaborated together, is that right? Well, yeah, he's acting as the interim executive director for the nonprofit I founded with Chris Grimmer called the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. And he's just a savior for our organization. And he started telling me about Hoffman and I became interested. So, um, like I said, I haven't taken the process yet, but I plan to this year. It sounds like it's a natural fit, you know, different ways of going about it. All paths lead to the same destination, I think. Maybe we'll catch you after as well to get your sense of how the overlay works. Yeah, sure. The next step of some of your work, which I think is really fascinating, is that if it works for the individual and the challenges of one's own life, why wouldn't it work in uh, global challenges such as climate change and undoing racism? Can you share a little bit about 
how you see self-compassion supporting those domains and the work in those areas. Yeah, yeah. So um, my latest work, my last book, focuses on fierce self-compassion. And so, and again, I didn't come up with that term. In in Buddhism, fierce compassion refers to action-oriented compassion. So, for instance, Thich Nhat Hanh, he was, you know, from Vietnam, and there was a lot of social justice movements to end the war in, in Vietnam. And so social justice work, which is caring for, you know, groups and trying to prevent harm and injustice, is often referred to as fierce compassion. What I realized is when people thought about self-compassion, they were pretty much only thinking of its tender accepting side, which it does have. So we, we accept ourselves unconditionally, flaws and all. We accept the fact that sometimes life is difficult and our emotions are sometimes you know negative or hurt. But compassion is not just about acceptance. We accept ourselves but we don't accept all our behaviors or all our situations, especially if those behaviors or, situ- or situations are causing harm, right? And that's when action-oriented compassion comes in to um, protect ourselves if we need to. If someone's, you know, crossing our boundaries, for instance, or harming us in some way or treating us unfairly, it's not compassionate to accept that. We need to stand up. We need to be brave. We need to take action. We need to say no. Also, an important part of self-compassion is taking action to meet our needs, right? To say, hey, you know, I'm important too. I'm not more important than others, but I'm, all, you know, I'm not going to subordinate my needs to those of others. I'm going to take time and energy and use some resources to meet my needs. And then also, again, as I mentioned, motivating change, which is the biggest misconception. So you might say that if tender self-compassion is the prototypical mother, <laughs> A fierce self-compassion is a prototypical mama bear, that you know, that fierce protective energy. It doesn't matter if you have kids or not, you're male, female, whatever, non-binary, it doesn't matter. That that energy of um, you know, fierce protection that's part of our biological nature, that's also a part of um, self-compassion. By the way, people may be wondering why I wrote my book for for women, um, or people socialized as women, mainly just to kind of call out gender role socialization, which does such a number on us because it says that people who are, you know, called male, um, they're allowed to be fierce, but not too tender. And if they cry or sensitive, you know, we're going to bully them, causes a lot of harm for people raised as males. And for people raised as females, they aren't allowed to be too fierce. We don't like people that are too fierce. We have different names for women who are too fierce. We don't like them to get angry. We don't like them to, you know, say no. We don't like them to stand up for themselves too much. And so I think gender role socialization is really harmed everyone because we both need the fierce and tender. It's like yin and yang. We need both to be healthy and whole. And yet gender role socialization has kind of split this between these two constructs called gender in a way that I think is really, really harmful for everyone. And I I wrote the book for women just because it kind of came out of my own experience of the Me Too movement in a really nasty situation I was part of. And I realized that a lot of the women involved in the situation, they were really kind of felt uncomfortable getting angry because it had been socialized out of them. And really seeing that this getting angry and injustice is an intrinsic part of compassion. And it was just too much to say, well, for men, it works this way. And for women, it works that way. And also non-binary folks, you know, in some ways, it's like, double. <laughs> the problem is everyone's shoved in a, a shoebox. And if you're non-binary, you really don't fit in any shoebox. So it's really just trying to call attention to these artificial shoeboxes we create 
um, that limit people, no matter, you know, to, from being their true, authentic, compassionate, beautiful selves. You have a great graphic using bears that I think we'll put in our show notes in case people want to check it out. So this, this protective mama bear energy of fierce self-compassion is not just protecting ourselves because, of course, self and others are intertwined, right? So if a particular group is being treated unjustly, you know, all the isms, sexism, racism, ageism, all the different forms of oppression, if we really care about ourselves because ourselves is the larger self, then we really also need to care about all these forms of oppression. And so a really important aspect of compassion is extending it to fighting for social justice, including the planet, right? It's not just people, also the planet. And so I think self-compassion is so key for these efforts at social justice in, in two ways, not only because that mama bear energy spurs us to protect ourselves by protecting everyone, ensuring justice is done, the planet is treated in a way that's sustainable, but it also helps the tender self-compassion helps kind of soothe and comfort us for the incredible pain and despair that often arises when you start actually looking at the problems facing our world. So we need both the tenderness to hold the pain of the harm being done, and then the fierceness to really commit to not letting it happen as much as we can in the future. I do know that later in this season, we're going to have Chris Germer on, and I just appreciate your partnership what has that been like with a man to co-create and to collaborate on such important work? I like to joke that Chris is my most functional adult male relationship of all the relationships with males my entire life. He's his, it's probably been the most functional. I think it's, it's just true love and respect for each other. Um, he's just such a good-hearted man, and we connect on so many levels. And, you know, we don't always agree, and we butt heads, but when we disagree, something better always comes out of it, right, from our disagreement. It's just been amazing. So the Mindful Self-Compassion Program was a true co-creation. Chris probably even took more time and effort in terms of, you know, developing the teacher training program, for instance, and getting it out there in the world. It's just one of those instances that that really brings home that two heads are better than one. <laughs> I know having joining with his head has definitely created a lot more value in terms of how do you actually teach it to people in a way that they can use in their real life. He's a genius at that. It's really thanks to him that self-compassion isn't just a research topic, but actually is a practice and a training system taught all over the world. Thank you, Dr. Neff. I'm so grateful. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.